This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is Wins and Losses with Clay Travis. Play talks with the most entertaining people in sports, entertainment, and business. Now, here's Clay Travis. Welcome in, Wins and Losses podcast. I appreciate all of you hanging out with us. I believe we're coming up right on 40 of these long-form conversations that we have had, and the feedback on them has been phenomenal. If this is the first one that you're listening to, I'd encourage you to go check them out from the world of sports, media, politics, business, and also some focus on COVID, which is what we're going to do again, part two with Ovik Roy. And before I bring him in, I got to say, it's rare I get praise for anything that I do for my wife in any part of my life at all. Uh, But after our first conversation, which we had back in August, she said, I wish everybody in the country could hear him and could hear that conversation because it cut through so much of the noise and got to the essence of COVID, our response, how to balance out going back to school from the perspective of August. It now has been, whatever it is, nearly six months since we last talked. We still are in the throes of much of the COVID-related hysteria, I would call it. And certainly we're now changing administrations because we're recording uh, the day after the, uh, the Biden inauguration. And so, Ovik, again, you're coming at my wife's request for part two of this discussion. So there's high, uh, there's high uh, potential uh, here, but also high uh, danger because I know for sure that she'll be listening. And she even sent me a couple of questions that she wanted me to ask. So first of all, thanks for coming with us again. Thanks for being so great in August. If you haven't heard that August conversation, I would encourage you maybe if you're starting this one to pause, go back into the podcast, listen to that August conversation first because a lot of the background I'm not necessarily going to go back over again because many of you have already heard it and I want to kind of get an update on your thoughts. So thanks for coming on again. Uh, People loved our conversation last time and I hope we can uh, help out a lot of people here and they will enjoy this one and get informed just as well as they did back in August. Hey Clay, what's your wife's name? (laughs) Laura, L-A-R-A, and just like you, uh, she is from uh, Oakland County. So she went to uh, Lasser High School 
She grew up in Bloomfield, so uh, went to the University of Michigan from there, and then we met in law school. So, uh, so Laura, my wife, is definitely listening right now, and uh, and you guys are both uh, fellow Michiganders, at least uh, in your youth. Yeah, I used to drive by Lasser High all, uh, to Detroit Country Day every morning on my way yeah. to school. So I yeah, because we well, talked about we anymore. talked about that last time where Chris Weber had gone yeah. to uh, to Detroit Country Day in Birmingham, Michigan, which is where my wife and I yeah. got married uh, back uh, back in the day, back in two thousand four. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, thank t- thank her for me. Thank you, uh, Laura, for for those kind words, and hope I can live up to it this time. All right, quick background. Again, I would encourage you, if you want a longer-form background of how Ovik ended up uh, doing what he does, go listen to our August 21st uh, conversation. But I just want to reset the table because some people won't do that. Uh, you grew up, like you just said, uh, playing basketball with Chris Weber at, uh, at, 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 <laughs> in Birmingham, Michigan. Uh, you then went to MIT, and then you went to uh, Yale for medical school. Do you want to give people like a two-minute synopsis of what you do in your professional life and have done in your professional life since leaving and finishing your schooling? Yeah, so my, my undergraduate major was effectively molecular biology, so the genetics, how DNA and genetics worked and how, how all that plays into how cells work, how our organs work, how our bodies work, how diseases work. And I went to med school. And then after med school, I didn't practice medicine. I ended up joining an investment firm called Bain Capital to help them figure out the biotech industry. So I spent a dozen years on Wall Street uh, in Boston and New York, so not, not, not always in the physical Wall Street, but working as an investor, investing in biotech companies, including vaccine companies and, and companies that develop treatments for various diseases, cancer, things like that. And along the way, I, uh, I got really interested in healthcare policy. Mitt Romney, as many people will know, is the founder of Bain Capital, and uh, I ended up working for his presidential campaign in 2012. Uh, he and his team asked me to help them design their health reform plan for the 2012 presidential race, and that led me down the rabbit hole of Obamacare and health reform and public policy in general. And now I run a think tank based in Austin, Texas, called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, or freeop.org online, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. And we work on ways to expand economic opportunity to those who least have it using free enterprise, individual liberty, technological innovation, and pluralism. In other words, uh, people like me believe that free enterprise is the thing that's lifted people out of poverty all over the world, all over the country, and we need to rededicate ourselves to doing that for the people who are struggling to make it in this incredibly challenging time that we live in now amen you're capitalist exactly <laughs> which is uh, like it's like some people are afraid to say they're actually co- capitalist nowadays uh and so uh the data and and what i love about it so i i talked about this back in august but i became aware of you because there was so much noise uh in this yeah. covid coverage in the media and I always say, you know, I don't need people to tell me what I should think. I would like to be able to see the numbers myself and make rational decisions. And so I first became aware of you uh, because you were looking at the stratification from an age range perspective of how COVID was impacting different populations, right? Because one of the first flaws, I think, uh, the original sins, as it were, potentially, of our response to COVID has been to treat this as if it is an equal opportunity disease that impacts everybody equally, much like, because you hear this analogy all the time, the 1918 flu, right? Which had a much more consistent impact across all age ranges. And so the decision to shut down schools, for example, 
was predicated on the idea, oh, the places that did that in 1918 had better success. But the problem is that schools and school-age children, unlike in 1918, are not primary vectors for the spread of this disease. So the positive impact in terms of lessening the spread is not in any way. We're basically fighting the war with the, the, the technology of the last war when this new war is entirely different, right? And that's what often happens in wars. You try to take the lessons that you learned from the last war. The problem is the situation has changed, and this isn't the same thing anymore. Yeah, you know, that, that war was 103 years ago, and it's a completely different virus. I mean, every virus is different. Influenza viruses, the way they behave, are different than the way coronaviruses behave in your body, the way they attack you, the kinds of people they attack. We actually have known from, uh, from previous coronaviruses that coronaviruses tend to attack older people, tend to be problematic in nursing homes. So people who really looked at the science, quote-unquote, should have known that we really needed to focus on protecting the elderly, but, but that's not what we did, and that was tragic. Okay, so I asked you last time, what letter grade would you give our – I'm not trying to be partisan or political here. I'm just saying as a policy perspective – what letter grade would you give our response to COVID as a country? Whew, boy, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, I would probably say, in fact, you know what, here's how I'll do it. So we actually looked at all the advanced economic countries in the world at, at FreeOp, and, and we compared, like, how's everyone doing? Both yeah. in terms of just deaths per capita, in terms of, like, the actual policy responses, economic restrictions, school closures. And, you know, as time has gone on, uh, the, the grade that we would give the U.S. has declined because as time has gone on, we've been the country that has actually the most lockdowns or, or some of the most severe lockdowns, uh, not the most severe in the world right now. That goes to Australia and New Zealand. But but over this over this 11 month period, if you add it all up, particularly because of California, New York, the, the, the bluer states where they've been much more aggressive on lockdowns, we've had some of the most severe economic restrictions, and yet California is seeing a massive spike in cases. The lockdowns aren't doing anything, right? So you put all that together, the school closures, the lockdowns, and yet the spike in cases, and you have to say that, uh, th- that the U.S. is somewhere between a D and an F, you know, overall at this point. And it didn't have to be that way because we were going to have deaths due to COVID. We were going to have people who are vulnerable who were hit, just like in every other country, every other large country that's developed has had that problem. But where we really have um, uh, wet the bed, so to speak, is that we did things that were provably not working, like keeping schools closed, like keeping the economy shut down in certain states, uh, instead of focusing on the real problem, which was nursing homes and the elderly living in these kind of dorm room-like facilities where we need to do more to protect them. Finally, we started to get the message around that. But by the time we did, uh, the, the virus had already spread throughout those communities. All right, if the country gets somewhere between a D and an F, what does the American media get in the way that they have covered uh, COVID in your mind as a guy who looks at the data? What grade would you give the overall American media? Oh, I mean, uh, F is a, a generous grade, right? Like, you'd, you'd have to give them worse than an F because – I mean, the way the media behaved was was almost to sabotage uh, uh, the way we we responded to COVID. In fact, uh, there's there's probably no institution, if you can call the media an institution, there's no institution that is more responsible for how bad the U.S. COVID response has been than the media. 
Just to give some examples, so as you talked about, Clay, we know from the data that the overwhelming risk in terms of severe illness, hospitalization, death from, from COVID-19 is in the elderly. And yet if you actually poll average Americans and ask them, like, what's, your, what's my perception of my risk from COVID? It's actually young people who are the most scared of dying of COVID because the media has been telling them day in, day out for, year, for, for months now that, uh, that they're the ones who should be scared, witless, because they're the ones not going to school. They're the ones on Zoom all the time with their teachers or whatever. So that's just one example of the incredible malpractice that has gone on. And, and you, you marry that with this partisan environment where there's, there's a, there was, has been such a desire to blame uh, Trump for everything that has gone wrong that people haven't been willing to see or examine where uh, where things really have gone wrong. So the all the things that Governor Cuomo continues to do to mess up the COVID response in New York, for example, or the restrictions in uh, California that aren't working, for example, or the fact that, uh, you know, schools, if you, you know, have you seen, Clay, any articles about uh, COVID breakouts in schools no. over the last four months? And, and you know that if there was one school in Kansas that had had like people in the hospital because of COVID and they, because they reopened the school, it would be on the front page of the New York Times. So there's basically been no incident of serious COVID problems from reopening schools. But has anyone written any think pieces about, wow, we, we've kind of got the school thing wrong? No, it's been just kind of people, people have moved on to the next drive-by uh, thing to complain about. So yeah, I mean, look, the media, the media has been terrible, and you can sort of shake your fist at the television or Twitter or the New York Times or whatever you want to do, but uh, I try to think about it more in terms of, okay, the media's been terrible. What is the solution, right? So if we ever have this kind of problem again, how do we think about having a, a better flow of information to everyday people? And that's a harder thing to think about. I mean, I, I, I can't say, that Clay, that I have the answer today. Because if you think about the public health establishment, which which comes in alongside the media for a lot of the of a lot of my criticism, you know, you have the the so-called leading experts at the leading universities saying the same things that the media is saying that everyone needs to be terrified, hide in their basements, and uh, and not go out, uh, and that's the only way to solve this problem. And and that's uh, that's not a sustainable policy, as we're seeing. Like, why is it that COVID is COVID cases are rising today? It's because people cannot sit in their basements. For a year, they just can't. And and the public health profession understood that before COVID. The consensus, the conventional wisdom, the ex- expert opinion then, pre-COVID, was, well, you can't lock down the economy. That never works because people eventually stop listening to you and just go about their business. So you have to have a better strategy than that. That was uh, the con- conventional wisdom among experts a year ago, and it isn't today. And that's a, a, a curious thing. So much that I want to unpack from that, and it, it, is, it is incredibly frustrating, I know, to a lot of people who are listening out there to see the data, right, like you do, and to have your background and not be able to convey it to everyone what the data says. And, and I always say, my wife says I don't need therapy because I get to say <laughs> exactly what I think every day, right, for better or worse, uh, through my radio show, through my television show. Like, I'm fortunate in many ways to be a member of the media. But there are people out there who will come after me on a regular basis because 
what I am sharing is not the quote-unquote conventional wisdom, right? Or they'll say, well, you're not a doctor. How in the world are you able to uh, have an opinion on the whether schools should be open or not? And my answer is, if you are a reasonably intelligent person, being able to analyze data is one of the most integral assets of any human anywhere, right? Risk analysis is arguably the most fundamental trait that has allowed humans to exist and propagate as a species, right? Like, that's innately what we all have to do. But it seems to me that in this social media age, uh, you know, if you said what I've been saying and what you've been saying for months, hey, elderly people, people with suppressed immune systems, people with major health-related concerns are who COVID is attacking. We need to protect those people but we need to maintain the rest of our economy and let our society function. The immediate response was, oh, you don't care about grandmas. You want everybody to die. It seems to, in many ways, have been a fundamentally broken marketplace of ideas because the right ideas haven't won and carried the day either in media or public policy, it seems to me. You know, Clay, there's a there's an analogy or a comparison we can make to sports here because you think about the the whole Moneyball sports analytics thing, right? All these people who came in who were sort of nerdy Ivy Leaguers or whatever, just people who are math nerds, never had played the sport, and they were always clashing with the the scouts who were that's right you know, veterans of the game, you know, using their intuition, their feel for the athletes to have that view of, uh, and they always looked down on the the nerds. They said, "Oh, you know, you don't." You don't get it because you've never played the game. You've you know you you've never seen anything. But the nerds ultimately have have won that that uh, that debate. That battle, right? yeah. Because they're uh, right. And 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 the difference is in sports, the right answer wins. Right, the right answer wins championships. The right answer puts the best team uh, on the field or on the court. And so you can be vindicated if you if you apply those unconventional uh, methods to, to sports. The difference in public policy is. The the tenured professors at, at Harvard and Stanford, who uh, more at Harvard than Stanford, we should say, but but the tenured professors who say we should we should keep schools closed and uh, and and terrify all the teenagers and the children, they're still Harvard professors. They're still in positions of authority. Some of them are joining the Biden administration. So, in that sense, that's the one thing about public policy is it's not a meritocracy. Wrong ideas, wrong policies can continue to be conveyed and continue to be enforced even if they've been proven wrong. That's fascinating. That's well said, and it's 100% true, and that's why I've always argued that sports represents the ultimate foundation of the meritocratic ideal because everybody's goal is to win, and whoever makes it more likely that you are going to win gets employed, right? Uh, Whether I mean, you can have Antonio Brown, who's got all sorts of different issues off the field, but if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers decide that he makes it more likely they're going to win a football game and that they think Tom Brady can work with him, they're going to find a way to bring him in, right? It, talent ultimately right. trumps everything, almost. There is a limit where your problems can exceed your talents, but that's relatively rare. And there's a way to immediately vindicate it. And frankly, in the world that you're coming from, which is the capitalistic environment, a market-based economy over time rewards in theory the best business so long as there are certain you know as long as there's not a monopoly involved as long as there's not some sort of untoward practice taking place but that's why capitalism ultimately works so well right is you do much like in sports get a verdict on whether or not your business made sense totally i mean and that's you know that's uh 
you know, you, there are economists who say this. Like, look, you know, if you if you're a business, you don't have your incentive is to be as inclusive as possible because you want every customer. You want the right. employees working for you. And now, obviously, it hasn't always worked that way historically, but that's not because the previous system was a, a free market system. It was because there was the prejudice, there was the segregation, there was the Jim Crow, there was the stuff going on that really prevented people from taking advantage of the talent that was all around them. And, and, uh, and companies obviously work hard to try to change that. How frustrating is it to you as someone who has been sharing the data from the, from the moment this all started? Why schools should be open, the stratification of age range of death and how that can govern our decisions for that not to have been inculcated fully into public policy and to see us here as we are now into a new administration, not able to, for instance, get kids back in school. Because what drives me crazy, Ovik, uh, and we're talking to Ovik Roy, I encourage you to go follow him at Ovik, A-V-I-K, at A-V-I-K on Twitter. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details is people who claim that they care about equity the most are propounding now the most inequitable outcome of our lives for the most part in requiring kids in public schools very often in cities who don't have Wi-Fi at home, who may not have parents at home, and who don't have access to outside-of-school education to be outside of school for a year. I mean, it makes me want to pull my hair out as a kid who went to public school K through 12 
and now is fortunate enough to live in a district where my kids are in school and I got a kid in private school as well. But if you have advantages, which I do, you can take advantage of those opportunities and give your kids those advantages. But most kids don't have that in this country. It's infuriating to me. You know, totally. I mean, the the, the most I, I tend not to get frustrated, Clay, and, and it, just because like if you do what I do for a living, uh, which is try to persuade people of your ideas and things like that, if you're going to get frustrated when people don't listen to you, this isn't the job for you, right? Like <laughs> you have to be you have to be willing to accept that not everyone's going to agree with you, and that it's hard work. If you've got a contrarian or dissenting opinion about the way the world should be, or the way policy should be, or the way the laws should be. It's, your, it's up to you to, to persuade everyone else that you're right, and that's going to mean uh, talking to a lot of people who disagree with you. So that's, if you don't have that sort of temperament, then you, know, you can't really do this kind of thing. So in that sense, I'm, I'm emotionally fine. But I, I will say that the one, the one moment uh, or, or, or period of time where I was most – my blood pressure was really rising – uh, admittedly, it was a selfish one where there was a point in time in the, in the spring or summer – I can't remember exactly when it was now – when uh, the Austin, the Travis County, which is the county that contains Austin, Texas, where I live, yes, there was this unelected Travis County interim health uh, uh, authority that basically said all the private schools would have to say close along with the public schools, and that was like you know for me because like like you, I can afford to send my kids to private school, which again is you know I feel terrible for the people who don't have that luxury, but for me that was like wow, this is like the government is going out of its way to make my life miserable on top of everybody else. That was just sort of on a purely selfish level, something that made me made me, uh, you know, made my blood pressure raise because uh, go up. But but you're right that that the incredible unfairness of it that that you and I can still send our kids to school, but so many people cannot. It's just incredible. You know, I testified before Congress, I want to say seven or eight times last last summer, last fall, you know, in that sort of spring, summer, fall time last year. And almost every single one of the hearings was about racial inequities that have been uh, exacerbated, worsened by COVID. Um, and the thing that was so surreal or crazy about those hearings is, you know, it, it, there was a lot of talk about, oh, you know, it's really uh, terrible that, um, you know, uh, African-Americans are, are getting COVID and, and uh, dying of COVID at disproportionate rates, which is true. But, you know, it's also true that the economic inequality uh, that that has come from government policy has disproportionately harmed minorities who are lower income, who can't afford to go to private schools, right, or send their kids to private schools. And that has been, I have to say, like uh, an astoundingly hypocritical thing. You know, you have all these people saying, oh, it's really terrible that, that, that the virus, uh, you know, has disproportionately harmed lower income Americans who are disproportionately non-white. Well, yes the government policies that have taken their jobs away from them, taken their livelihoods away from them, taken their schools away from them, has been incredibly harmful and is going to uh, widen economic inequality in this country. And, and, and you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, certainly at, at our organization at freeop.org, we've, we've worked hard to try to make those points. And I think, you know, we've had some success with that. I, I think there are lots of um, – People of both parties, of both you know ideologies or whatever you want to say, progressive, conservative, independent, who who realize that schools need to be reopened. The difference is on the Democratic side, the teachers unions are just such a dominant force politically. No one wants to cross the teachers unions, and that has been the decisive factor. Can you say follow the science and in any way justify schools being closed at this point in the United States of America? 
No, and I, I think one of the things you know we're gonna we're gonna do a kind of an action after action report uh, of the pandemic, hope in the hopes that the pandemic is actually is over in the next several months as people get vaccinated. But I think one of the things that's really gonna we're gonna really focus on in our writing is the absolute disgrace of of the uh, or or the gap or or discrepancy between the people who use the word science most often in their in their speeches or their tweets and the actual science uh which shows something completely different and and again what's been so troubling is that the people who should have the most stake in scientific authority the Anthony Fauci's you know these people uh, at the universities that I've been mentioning they're the ones who've done the most to undermine trust in "Quote unquote scientific authority," you know. Fauci's running around saying, "Oh, it's so surprising that there haven't been COVID breakouts in schools." Um, no one ever expected that. We all expected that uh, that there would be massive outbreaks uh, in schools after we reopened. So that's really quite strange. And I mean, I'm thinking, what bubble is this guy in? But clearly, he is in one, right? And and that is a huge, huge problem. And there needs to be a real self-assessment in the scientific community about. Uh, about the politicization of basic information around who's being impacted by the virus, what kinds of uh, uh, interventions are working, what kinds of interventions are not working. And my hope is that now that Biden is president, we can start to have more of an honest conversation about that. I feel like, you know, because so many people in the academic world are anti-Trump, no one wanted to say that Trump was doing anything right while Trump was in office. But maybe now that he's gone, Maybe it becomes safer, you know, for that Harvard professor to say, like, actually, the Trump administration, they did this thing. You know, I don't agree with everything they did, but they did this thing right or they did that thing right. Um, maybe the CDC was wrong in, in this particular case or whatever. Maybe that conversation gets a little more de- depoliticized now that, that Biden's in office. We can only hope. Uh, but uh, but we're going to certainly do our part to, to contribute to that conversation. I can't wait to read that, and I want to make sure that I help you distribute it uh, to the best way that we can. And in my limited world, certainly, we have a big audience in the world of sports. And I will say, you said, you know, the the overall public policy response has been very bad in the world of uh, all Republicans, Democrats, independents, whatever you want to say. The media, I think, in general, does deserve a grade worse than F, which is what you said. I'm actually somewhat encouraged that sports got much of this right. Um, And it was a battle to get it right. But when we talked back on August 21st, we didn't know whether college football 100% was going to happen. We now have crowned a champion. Uh, We did not know whether uh, the NBA was going to be able to finish their season. They did in the bubble. Now they're out of the bubble in the next season. Major League Baseball finished their season with fans present in Texas. The NFL has played... Their entire schedule so far, we're talking in the week of the AFC and the NFC championship games, all of those sports, not to mention countless high schools, uh, as well as other sports that are not anywhere near as popular on a collegiate level or a professional level. Ovik, there isn't a single death or even serious illness that has been connected to coaching or athletics. And the coaches are obviously older than the, the players, but that's what the data told us was likely to happen. And people are like, oh, wow, this actually ended up being possible. Thankfully, they took the chance and tried to figure out a way to make it happen. 
what letter grade would you give sports leagues for their willingness and ability to play once they came back? Certainly NASCAR is involved, tennis, all these other different sports. Uh, And are you at least as appreciative as I am that we found a way to get that done and that the data showed, lo and behold, that it was safe and it was possible to do? Uh, d- definitely appreciative, and, and not just uh, that they did it for for the sake of the athletes who obviously work so hard for those opportunities, but for the rest of us who, you know, just as human beings, we needed something uh, that was not political, or at least mostly not political, uh, and, and th- that we could that we could point to and cheer about uh, in our lives in, the, in this very challenging re- year we've just had. So grateful, I'm grateful to the sports leagues that that worked hard to make it happen. We, and you know, and you've covered it on your show. You know, it's not like the sports league said business as usual. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of work, a lot of testing, a lot of restrictions on attendance by the fans that went into keeping sports going in a cautious uh, and prudent way. Uh, and, and hopefully they've learned from that to realize, okay, maybe we can, we can uh, loosen it up a little bit to, now that we've learned that we can do this safely and, and operate safely. But you know what it really comes back to in my mind, uh, Clay, is what you said at the beginning, capitalism, right? It's the financial incentive for sports leagues to stay open was a big driver of why they did stay open. And now at the time, you know, last summer, last early fall, August, September, that was, you know, the sports pundits said this is so terrible. You know, these, these leagues, particularly, the, you know, in terms of college sports where, you know, there's the, the conflict between amateurism and the money. If these leagues are putting money ahead of, of humanity. They're, they're, they're so greedy and so terrible. And I look at it in exactly the opposite way. It was the the financial or economic incentive which motivated them to get it right, to figure out, hey, there's got to be a way to do this safely. We're going to lose a lot of money if we don't figure out how to do it safely. So let's figure it out. And exactly the same dynamic, Clay, is true with schools. So why is it that private schools around the country are open and public schools are not? First of all, you don't have teachers unions in private schools. But a big part of it is, if you're that private school, if you're running a private school and you say, no, we're going to go to Zoom, no one, everyone's going to disenroll. No one's going to show up at that school and your school is going to go broke because you're not going to get any tuition dollars in the door. Whereas in the public schools, the money is flowing regardless of what you do. So why keep the school open when you're going to get paid either way? So the economic or financial incentives were absolutely a critical driver of why public schools have been closed but why sports leagues and private schools were open. God, it's so well said. I mean, it, it 100% is. Now, not surprisingly, the sports media, mostly, there are exceptions. You're listening to one of them. But the sports media mostly followed the lead of the national media in making the arguments there's no way that it's safe to play, right? Uh, CBS Sports, for example, I talked about this a lot on my radio program. They had an expert, and, and you know how this works, the experts that say the things that don't make headlines, oh yeah, there's definitely a way to play sports. That doesn't make the headline. The expert who comes out and literally at CBS Sports guaranteed a football player would die and predicted there would be at least three to seven as if he were Nick, you know, Joe Namath back in the day. He guaranteed a death and said he predicted that there would be three to seven that's a headline at CBS Sports. They finished the season in college football, and that's what he was specifically making his prediction about. Everybody is fine. There are no issues. And the story just disappears, right? There's no consequence 
for an expert, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, being 100% wrong, particularly when those people have tenure at universities, it's like it's, it's impossible for them to ever have a consequence, and that probably goes back to your point. In a market-based economy, if you're wrong, you lose your job. In a university setting, if you're wrong, you just write a new article explaining why you were wrong and uh, and 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 or completely ignoring it. Or just ignore and it. There's no and there's no consequence. Yeah, you know. In fact, uh, you're reminding me of uh, uh, I can't remember which media organization it was. It may have been ESPN. It may have been uh, Yahoo or CBS. Uh, lots of people. There was the, there was the Big Twelve expert that the Big Twelve uh, ads uh, recruited who said actually you can operate the league safely and here's how you do it. And there was a, a round of articles criticizing That's right. the Big 12 and that expert saying, oh, the Big 12 just you know, went doctor shopping and found some idiot off the street who, who was going to validate what they wanted to do and, and not listen to the science. Right? And that guy turned out to be right. And everyone else turned out to be wrong, at least the ones that say the Big 10 was listening to it, it is. I mean, and, and, and all of this, you know, and, and again, to kind of relitigate some of this, you remember the myocarditis story that flared up. Oh, my God, if you get a if you get covid, you're going to get myocarditis. Your heart's going to be ruined forever. There's no way we can play sports. Nobody had myocarditis issues either. But if they did, that often happens with viral infections in general. It wasn't specific to covid and the media, what I called fear porn govern the day and and candidly behind the scenes I was having conversations with commissioners as early as April and I said look you're used to people being in favor of your sport everybody in the sports media is going to be opposed to you guys playing college football this year they're not going to carry the water for the NFL they're not going to say hey this is a brilliant idea they're all going to buy into the fear and curl up in the fetal position and argue that there's no way this should be happening well, as, as you know, Clay, I mean, it's been a long-standing dynamic in sports media that, you know, sports writers, sports commentators, they, 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 particularly the ones who work at, say, major newspapers or major news organizations, right? They feel that sort of inferiority complex of we're not the real journalists, like the people who work on, you know, who go to Capitol Hill or cover the White House. So they, they feel that, that sense of, well, I have to do what the the other journalists tell me to do, because if I don't, then I'm going to be seen as that fluffy sports reporter and not the hard journalist that I really am. And, and so that sort of that sociological element uh, of the sports writing or sports media community plays a big role in in their deference to to what uh, to what other people are saying that they feel they have to defer to. And uh, so it's some of it's fear, some of it's that deference, some of it is just genuinely like you know being terrified or whatever it is all that to say that you know what people like you and me and and the people who listen to your podcast and the other people out there who who who've had the same point of view need to do is to make sure that uh as we go through this we're able to assess and and have that after action report where we can say okay guys let's learn from this let's learn about what the so-called experts told you that was right and what they told you that was wrong and certain things that were unknown. So to take the example of myocarditis, I mean, you and I were, were more skeptical that that was a, a serious issue, but you can understand risk-averse college presidents, risk-averse ADs saying, you know what, we've, we've got to be concerned about this because I, I don't want to deal with the litigation if you want to be cynical or I don't want to deal with that on my conscience if somebody really gets sick, the kind of the, the, you know, the, the Reggie Lewis type thing. So you know, do the MRIs, do the testing. Every, you know, 
uh, uh, Power Five uh, University certainly has the ability to, to arrange for those tests. If, you, if, if someone's COVID positive, you can, you can look to see if there's inflammation in their heart muscle and, and, and monitor it, which they did, right? Most of the, most of the, the, the big conferences did that. And that's what allowed them to get that, uh, that relief that this wasn't a big deal. So I don't have a problem with, if they're going to be really risk-averse, invest the extra money, since they make so much money off college sports, or at least the revenue sports, you know, to, to invest in those tests, to see what's going on, make sure that nothing is going wrong. But to shut down the season altogether, that's stupid. You know, keep an eye on it. And if it looks like things are, are going to go wrong, that's one thing. And remember, there were a lot of sports writers who said about the college football season, say, oh, this is so pointless. The whole season's going to get shut down after two weeks anyway. You know, why is anybody even bothering? And as you said, you know, the, the season basically, yes, there were games that were canceled and things like that, but, but uh, the season was played, and, and I, I think most people are pretty, pretty happy about that. And to go to your point on the market-based capitalistic economy being the most efficient, which, by the way, all of world history proves, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Uh, but uh, for anybody who wants to study uh, the history of, uh, of economies uh, and, uh, and market-based uh, decision-making in general, it's probably not a surprise if you adopt that line of thinking that the NFL, which had the absolute most money at stake and is the biggest business in all of pro sports, had the most successful season because not only did they play every single game as scheduled, all 32 NFL teams played all 16 games, but they did it on their schedule. They didn't even have so far. Uh, the, the AFC and NFC championship games are Sunday. We're talking in the middle of the week leading into that. And then the Super Bowl, they've got two weeks to be able to schedule that. But right now it's scheduled as it typically is for two weeks after the Sunday AFC and NFC championship games. And a lot of them had fans present. But every television part of their game, which is where the biggest part of their revenue comes from, guess what? They did the best job. Biggest business does the best job in pro sports with putting their product out there for people to watch. And it's arguably the most difficult because of all the physical contact that goes into football compared to, let's say, baseball uh, or tennis or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, as, as you were talking, I was, I was re- recalling the the European soccer summer soccer season from last year, right? Not some of the leagues didn't play, but the ones that did had no problems, right? Everything worked out just fine. Yeah. There were some positive tests here or there, things like that. But, uh, but, but the games that were played were played and worked out just fine. Yes. There weren't fans in the audience and they would pump in the crowd noise on the broadcast, but, but otherwise it worked. And that was our first indication that actually this could be done or to that could give us the confidence, right? The real world example that this could be done. So, so kudos to the NFL. I mean, I, I definitely very impressive that, that they've managed to, to have everything run on time. And, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I, you know, part, part of it too is, you know, one thing we, we probably should, you know, uh, take into account here is pro athletes, particularly football players, there's so much discipline involved, you know, in being a pro athlete you know, in the NFL, it's just, you know, you can get cut so ruthlessly and, and have your career cut short if you make one mistake. Um, and uh, if you make it to the pros, you're likely to have that discipline and that maturity. Not everyone does. And we've seen some, you know, notorious cases of that not being the case. But but most of the athletes have really stuck to it, right? Whereas at the college level, it's a little harder, right? These are kids. Um you know, uh, there's a, there's a campus, there's parties, there's people who admire them and want to, you know, want to party with them. 
there's a lot more temptation when, when you're a college student to do the wrong thing. And so, you know, it, it's, it's impressive on both counts, right? It's impressive that the college season managed to do as well as it did, even with a lot of interruptions. And obviously you look to the pros and say, hey, uh, you know, hats off. We're talking to Ovik Roy. Freeop.org is his website. Follow him on Twitter at Ovik, A-V-I-K, at A-V-I-K is his Twitter handle. Uh, And this is the Wins and Losses podcast. I am Clay Travis. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. One of the challenges that I see that is the largest in the world of sports and other places, and I'm curious what you think about this, so much of our media is anecdote-driven. And the anecdote mm. is used to justify the overall story. So, and I'll give you an example. If, as you mentioned, I remember, and this is unfortunate, and I feel for his family, there was a kid who died at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, of COVID or with COVID. I, it's not like I've reviewed his medical files to know exactly. But his death then becomes a front-page New York Times article talking about the challenges of going back to college. The 2 million or 4 million or whatever the heck number it is of college kids that go back and don't have any issues at all, it's all about framing, in other words. If I wanted to write a story about how dangerous it is for kids to drive back to college at the end of summer, inevitably, every year, There are kids who die driving back to college campuses. That doesn't mean as a general rule that it is incredibly dangerous for those kids to be driving back to college campuses. Inevitably, every year, there are college kids that get the flu and die, the seasonal flu. That doesn't mean that all kids on college campus are in danger of the seasonal flu. Outliers occur, and as a data guy, outliers can be fascinating for you, I'm sure, to review but they are just that outliers. How much of our challenge in media today is using anecdotal outlier stories to justify a preferred narrative such as sports can't happen because this college kid died even if it's in no way representative of the larger data set? That is such a challenge it seems to me because the story of one death is more overpowering than sometimes the story of a million people being fine. You know uh, what I'm what I'm thinking about is as you go through that, and all all well said is, you know my 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 takeaway from from 2020 on that score is every high school in America should require that its students take a statistics class. Yes, because statistics are the thing they drive so much of life nowadays, especially because we have all this data being thrown at us uh, because of the world we live in, and we just don't know how to process it, and we process it wrong, and that that affects the way. Sports, you know, sports gets analyzed. That that affects the way uh, lawsuits happen, particularly the class action type lawsuits. It affects government policy. Obviously, it affects medicine. It affects so many different things in our world. Uh, and if people had that set, that understanding of statistics and how to separate anecdotes from the overall uh, uh, context of those of those anecdotes, you know, that would be an important service that would do a lot to just calm everyone down, I hope. You know, maybe that's uh, that's uh, Pollyanna-ish or na- naive of me to, to, to feel that way. But I really do believe that if, if we could have a country where people were more 
journalists in particular more numerate, more affluent in statistics, it would be so much better. I mean, the, the story that really crystallizes to me everything that went wrong with the media coverage last year was the was the huge story, uh, and I talked about it the last time I was on with you, in the, in the New York Times where it was claimed that there was a South Korean study that was purported to show that kids were in, infectious and it was dangerous to reopen schools. And this was plastered all over the New York Times. It was circulated to every school district in the country. And there was reporting afterwards that said that, uh, that basically there were a lot of you know, school principals, superintendents who wanted to open schools. They read that article in the New York Times and said, no, we're not going to do it. Uh, obviously egged on by the teachers' unions. And it turned out that the, that the article totally misrepresented the data and that once the full data set came out, it was pretty clear that, in fact, kids were not infectious in South Korea, just like kids were not infectious anywhere else, that schools had been open and everything had been fine. But did the New York Times retract their story? No. Did the New York Times run another story saying, hey, we got uh, South Korea wrong? Not really. I mean, they did write another article about South Korea, but it was very mealy mouth and no reader who didn't already know what was going on would be able to know from that article that the New York Times had made a, a terrible mistake. But that's one journalist at one influential newspaper whose misunderstanding of scientific data led to uh, something that impacted the lives of tens of millions of kids all over the country. And uh, that's that's something that just should not happen. And I hope we can we can have a world in which statistics are more a part of the conversation where when you encounter a, a fact or a, uh, you know, a journalistic assertion, we could do more to have statistics back it up. Now, that alone won't solve the problem because, you know, the old line from Benjamin Disraeli, the, the old uh, 19th century prime minister of, 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 of Great Britain was, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. We all know from sports that, that, that you can come up with lots of different statistics to justify, uh, you know, anything that you and anything that you want to believe or anything that, that are your priors. So you have to go one level below that and really understand which statistics accurately measure things and which statistics don't. But just having that basic understanding of, you know, one anecdote is not, you know, uh, re reflective of everything else. If one person dies in a car accident, it doesn't mean you should hide in your garage. If one person dies of COVID, it doesn't mean the world's going to end. Um, you know, that would obviously be uh, a welcome development. One way that I try to combat that is in addition to talking to people like you and hopefully sharing your worldview with my audience is throughout this entire COVID mess on my radio show, I've been very transparent with the choices that I'm making in my own life because people can say, oh, you're saying that. But I think for most people out there who are parents like you and me, our children are our most prized possessions. My children, my oldest is in private school. My two youngest go to school every day. Uh, I have traveled with them on airplanes. Uh, I have taken them to go watch NFL games. We have allowed them to play, in addition to going to school, all of their different sports leagues in our neighborhood where the sports leagues are going on. And I hope to be sharing, that is anecdotal, right? But it's me trying to live up to the data under which I am telling them that the things that I believe should happen, sports should be played, for example, I'm living my life by that data too. I'm not telling you to do one thing and then doing the opposite, which frankly has been, I think, probably the most destructive thing that public policy officials have, have done, whether it's Gavin Newsom eating at the French Laundry uh, restaurant 
or uh, so many different politicians out there who tend to be more affluent than the average person they represent having their own kids in private school going to class while they are allowing all of the public school kids who don't have the same uh, ability uh, of resources as their own kids to not be in school, right? So that hypocrisy, I'm trying to live my life in the way that I would say the data reflects I should. And that goes to what I think is is a really big story here. And I know this is basically what you do for a living. You're talking about analyzing probability and statistics, which I think Americans as a group do poorly. But also success or failure to me in many parts of life seems to be predicated on your ability to analyze risk in this country, whether it's what you invest in, whether it's what you do on a day-to-day basis, your risk barometer, I would bet if there was a way to study it, the people who are the best at risk barometer basis are probably the most successful in the country. Would you buy into that idea as well? You know, that's, that's a, such a great point. You know, I, I, it's not just what your ability to analyze risk, but it's your attitude toward risk. I mean, one of the one of the things that led to the to the rise of Donald Trump, in a sense, is this divide between blue collar America and you know college collegey book smart America, and and we're seeing that in the electoral results. Like if you look at the elector, election returns, uh, the, if you, and you look at who's voting for whom, what really is the driver more than race, more than income, more than any other factor, is uh, do you have a college degree or not? Uh, and if you do, you tend to vote one way. And if you don't, you tend to vote another way. That, that's the most powerful thing out there. And, and, you know, people who are on the elite side say, oh, that just means that we, the educated, smart people, you know what's best for you all and you're all, you all, the rest of you are dumb and ignorant. I look at it a different way, which is, you know, I, I, I'm looking out my window right now in downtown Austin and there's a, uh, you know, a 20-story building under construction right, right across the street here. And there are people climbing up on these the scaffolds, you know, cleaning the windows and laying down the insulation. And those people understand risk, right? Because if, if they don't uh, strap themselves in and, and they don't uh, act carefully, they're going to fall off of that uh, platform and, and, and die, literally die, right? They understand the risk of, of, of their job. And the challenge for a lot of sports writers, a lot of academics, people who basically live lives with no risk. And, and frankly, I'm in that crowd, right? Like I have a white collar job. I have a good income. You know, we've, we've talked about how my life is pretty cushy compared to the people who can't send their kids to school, et cetera. Like people who have that sociological background or socioeconomic background, they tend to be more risk averse, right? Because they're not used to dealing with a world in which like if they're on, if they're careless about something, things can go badly wrong. Whereas blue collar America you're, people are used to things going wrong. People are used to having to be careful. They're used to physical danger. And athletes too, right? You, 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 you're, not, you're careless about the way you train. You're careless about the way you stretch. You're careless about the way you run the football. You're going to get injured, right? And athletes are very uh, aware of that. Um, and, and so people who deal with physical risk every day uh, are much more likely to look at something like COVID and say, you know what? I can handle that. Whereas it's the people who sit on, in front of a computer all day uh, who are terrified. It's also what I always say is like going to public school and going, and I went to some public schools that weren't very good, but there is a benefit to knowing that you might get your ass kicked at school. You know, like having that fear where you know that you're not 100% safe and you have to carry yourself in a way that analyzes risk. Maybe I shouldn't say that. 
to that guy right now, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. he might beat my ass, right? And I feel like we have and, – and look, every generation is getting safer progressively in the United States, right? So uh, this – this and that's been going back in time. The data would reflect from the moment people got on ships and came to our shores – Life, life uh, lengths are growing. Like we are living in the least dangerous time in the world that anyone could ever live in, right? Um, all the data reflects mm-hmm. that. But it seems to me that our fear meters are so much more attuned to danger than they ever have been before. And people who are, and COVID is a metaphor for this, people who are not at risk, as you said when we started this conversation, young people. They feel terrified, right? They think they're going to get, and this isn't just COVID, they think they're going to get kidnapped. They think they're going to get murdered. They think something bad is going to happen to them when statistically most people have never been safer if you're living in America right now than any time in human civilization than this exact moment. Yeah, you know that that's another great point, Clay. That uh, that that there's a negativity, and you know we've been complaining a lot on on this interview, but you know, like there's a negativity to uh, to, to to journalism today. That something good happening typically isn't news, right? Like if something bad happens, yeah. if a train derails, that's news. If a train goes and stays on its tracks, which is almost always what happens with every train, it's not news, right? A plane crashing is news. A billion plane flights going off and taking and landing is not news. So news in and of itself is better easily able to spread now. But there is, I think, a natural negativity bias because good news happens far more frequently and therefore isn't news. The negative tends to dictate and scare. Again, it goes to your point on probability and statistics and analysis and being able to contextualize what I was saying, risk. You know uh, that's absolutely right, and and the one thing I'm I'm thinking about as you say that is how does technology, digital media, change all that? Our our, our conventional wisdom, which is obviously has some truth to it, is uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, cable news uh, exacerbate or worsen those problems because what are the things that people want to get motivated and get angry about and share with their friends the stuff that they're mad about about the world, right? And that's certainly true, but it's also true that on um, on, on digital platforms, you see people share inspiring stories. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, if you look at the stories that are getting the most traffic, it's like, uh, and I think you shared it actually, the story about uh, Tom Brady throwing the touchdown to Drew Brees' son. It's beautiful. Game, yes. Uh, yes. Last weekend, right? Like that got enormous traffic. So people hunger for, for good news too. And I guess the thing is, can we think about, again, I'm, I'm always trying to think about what's the solution here? How do we move beyond this and try to make things better? And I feel like we've, we've got to uh, think more and media organizations that, that have an economic incentive to do so should think more about how do I share those inspiring stories, the good news, the, the kindness, the sportsmanship, the things that, that we could show to our kids and say, you know what, be more like that guy. Be more like Tom Brady and Drew Brees after a hard-fought game. Don't be like the sore loser or whatever. You know, I, I think there's an opportunity in there. It's interesting to me because if you think about, let's take a step back and just think about it from a capitalistic perspective. There is big incentive to get financial stories right, such that people will pay huge amounts of money to you know get a Wall Street Journal or a Bloomberg article or wherever it is to them first, right? And getting that news right from a financial perspective is incredibly important. 
it seems to me that there, and so the quality, I would say, you may disagree, I'm not an expert in finance journalism, but it seems to me the quality of finance journalism is higher than the quality of many other types of journalism because what pays in many other types of journalism is not nuance or analysis or intelligence necessarily, it's emotion. And the emotion can be good. Oh, look how great Tom Brady is and Drew Brees after that game, they're throwing a pass. But the emotion can also be hyper-negative, which is why I say, look, Trump is a symptom of the industry and universe in which we live, not the cause of it. He is an inarticulate voice in many ways for a conversation that needs to happen. What always, and Trump is a whole different story, but always frustrated me about Donald Trump was, I just wish somebody had been making some of the same arguments that he was making with a factual foundation as opposed to a gut foundation, which I think was very often the way he was responding. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's, uh, that's what I certainly hope for the same thing. I hope that we can, we can draw the lessons of, of, the, of, the, of the criticisms of America that, that, Trump, that, that what Trump was right about without the, <laughs> the other aspects of, of Trump's uh, approach to life that, that uh, we wouldn't want to teach our kids or we wouldn't want to uh, in terms of the way we treat each other. So okay. all that, absolutely. Is, go ahead. No, I, well, oh, I, I was going to cut you. I, was, I had a big uh, the question here I was going to try to hit you with, but okay, yeah, all, all this conversation we just had um, is people are going to love it and fantastic. But you said you're working on basically a retrospective to look back at the way the society responded, to look back at the decision to shut down schools. When is that going to come out? And it's a cliche because it is true, uh, especially if you like history. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We find out the errors that we made and hopefully learn from them going forward into the future. Who knows when the next pandemic might happen? If you had been able to look at the data set that you have right now, you're reviewing all, everything that has happened with COVID, what would have gotten us an A in public policy? What would have gotten the media an A in coverage? What would have been the best response that we could have had? Let's pretend that you and I uh, are able to implement American policy, or maybe not me at all, you, back in March when this virus is just arriving on our shores. Probably it was here in December or whatever else. But March, when we really start responding to it, what was the right response? What should we have done to have the most effective possible American response to COVID? Well, first of all, I, I love that you're like you're now my editor, and you, you gave me a deadline, or you said <laughs> give us a deadline when your, your article's going to come. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna say, okay, we'll get this out by the end of February. So we're recording okay. this. I can't wait to January. read it. Yes, I'll get, I'll get it out at the end of February. And you know, I, I'll say a couple things. Uh, you know, obviously this is <laughs> this is we could have a we could have a whole hour and a half conversation about that question, but. And maybe we will when your whole paper comes out, because I'd love for you to come back after I have a chance to read it and digest it for you to be able to talk about it with us, because I think my audience would love it. But, uh, okay, dive in, broad picture question that I just asked. Yeah, and look, there's a lot to say about this topic. And, you know, in fact, I just interviewed uh, the now uh, former HHS Secretary Alex Azar on, on a lot of this stuff last week. You can find it on YouTube if you Google my name and his. Um, and more to say about that, but I'll, I'll say a couple things to, to, to whet the appetite of, of you and your listeners. First is, if you actually look at which countries have performed well this time around with COVID, it was mostly the countries of the Pacific Rim, East Asia. And why is that? It's because the countries of the Pacific Rim have encountered the coronavirus before. 
they had encountered SARS-CoV-1 in 2003. And it was because of their experience with that first SARS coronavirus, or at least the one that we call the first SARS coronavirus, that led them to, when this one came around, they took it seriously from day one. They did the, the social distancing and the other kinds of things to be careful, but they didn't shut down their societies. They didn't have to because their citizenry knew how to behave. Their governments knew uh, what steps to take to get the testing going and everything else. So my hope, my optimism is that the experience of this pandemic will lead us to be smarter in general about both the way everyday people respond to the crisis and how the government responds. Maybe that's too optimistic, but I think there's reason to be hopeful of that if we look at the example of Asia. The second thing I'll mention is the vaccine. So one of the things that's come out of this past 12 months or 10 months that's been remarkable is the development of these of these coronavirus vaccines. As I think I talked about with you on your last show that we did together, the previous world record for developing a vaccine for a novel virus was five years for the Ebola virus. Five years. We shattered that record. Two different biotech companies, one American, Moderna, and another German, BioNTech, basically developed these mRNA Based vaccines. mRNA is a is a type of genetic code material like DNA. They developed these mRNA vaccines and turned them around incredibly quickly. And we got them on the market in, in incredible record time. And what's really, really encouraging about that is that these mRNA vaccines are actually really easy to manufacture. They're really easy to develop. It's almost like software. You type in the genetic code, you plop out the vaccine, and it's ready. The the Moderna they had their vaccine, their first batch that they developed for testing, that was ready to go in January, February of last year, almost a year ago. So think about this. If we have another coronavirus or another virus that is amenable to that kind of technology, you could develop a vaccine much sooner. Once the genetic sequence of that virus is published, you can develop the vaccine right away. And for those high-risk individuals, frontline workers, nursing home residents, the people who are particularly vulnerable, you can get them vaccinated within a month of the pandemic or two months of the pandemic instead of waiting for almost a year to get that vaccine out. And if you can do that, you can stem a lot of the damage that comes from the serious illness from, from a novel pandemic. Hopefully this is a situation we don't have to encounter for a while. But to me, that technological advance is one of the things that a lot of people aren't talking about that we can bring to the next uh, crisis that we have if we are so unlucky as to have one. A couple more questions, though. I know how busy you are. You hear a lot about the death uh, rate from COVID. And I always say, like, nobody – I always say on my radio show, nobody hates death more than me, right? Like, so I am – I want to make it clear here that I am adamantly opposed to death. I wish we could live almost forever. I wish nobody's grandma ever died. Uh, all those things. The focus, again, going back to the statistical analysis, the age of death from COVID, and you might need to say with COVID, but however you want to phrase that, is either around the same age as the average age of death in the country as a, as a whole, or maybe a little bit older, right? Uh, and you can speak to that data better than I can. So am I correct roughly in the, in the average age of death from somebody who is being uh, classified as a COVID death? is not much different than the average age of death overall in the United States? 
That's uh, that's generally true. You know, obviously, it's older people who are typically dying of COVID. It's older people who die generally. Yes. Um, uh, and in fact, as you know, we we published some analyses that show that uh, the real uh, bulge or differential in in who's dying of COVID in the United States relative to pre-existing normal quote unquote death rates by age bracket is that sort of upper upper middle age bracket rather than the elderly, because the elderly, as you say, are dying anyway. And this is this is something I think there's going to be, and I think this may be the thing you're getting at, we may find as we sift through the data that the death rates of the elderly in 2020 versus the death rates of the elderly in a normal year were not that different and or that the the uh, the age of death is only, a, you know, maybe a couple months before the life expectancy for say, an 85-year-old, maybe that 85-year-old would have lasted until 86, maybe it would have lasted until 87, and COVID, you know, pushed that a, a little earlier, but not by a dramatic amount. We don't know. I think those are some debates that are going on in the, the statistical community right now, but we'll start to learn about that. And, and this, another thing that we're going to have to study, Clay, is how many people died not because of COVID, right. but because they were locked in their rooms or they, they and in they fact the average age of those people is going to be much younger which is where i was going to go years lost of life we talk yeah. a lot about death but really i think everybody out there when you take a step back and think about it from an analytical perspective uh and also then factor in a little bit of emotion the reason why when a five-year-old dies we feel so much worse than when an 85-year-old dies is because the five-year-old had so many lives, uh, so much of their life left, so many years to live compared to the 85-year-old. And one of the things I've said, to the extent that there is a gift at all, can you imagine if we had COVID except it had taken all young people instead of primarily been old people? That's a totally different dynamic, which goes to your point about the vaccine. I mean, I've got young kids. I mean, I would have been curled up in the basement, right? Like, I would have been terrified for them. And so when we talk about the number of deaths that we have, the other thing that I don't hear discussed very much is from an analytical, statistical perspective. In theory, if the people who are dying are dying not necessarily with tons of years left on their life, right? They have comorbidities. They are otherwise unhealthy. People are talking about how this is an unprecedented death, and and I understand that. But in 2022 and in 2023 and in 2024, and maybe even in 2021 if the vaccine gets distributed well, isn't it likely that we would see a substantial decline in deaths? In other words, focusing on how many people are dying this year, to me, is missing that a lot less people would theoretically die in the next couple of years ahead and not just rationalizing and recognizing, we're not stopping death, right? Like, the average Mm -hmm. age of death is going to still be what it is. I hope we can continue to raise it. But every day, I think, in this country, around 8,000 people die, and the overall understanding of that seems to be very limited in the media and the analysis and discussion of this issue. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that's going to be hard to tease out from just last year's data, because as you said, who died with COVID and who died of COVID, we literally are not recording that information because the hospitals don't have an incentive to. So so that's going to be a hard thing to to look at next year. I mean, this year in 2021 and understand. But, you know, what you're what you're bringing up is that after several years, let's say we look at the period from 2020 to 2023, 
or 2020 to 2025 and say, okay, over that five-year period, how many people in a particular age bracket died versus what we'd see in a non-pandemic period? That's going to give you the answer that you're talking about in terms of was there and a it may, real – And it may not even be noticeable. Over 10 years, it's probably not going to be noticeable at all if you average it out over 10 years, right? In other words, we're all – so much of social media and so much of media today is about reacting instantaneously to what's occurring at this exact point. But when you sort of expand your horizon, a lot of public policy decisions, it seems to me, are ma- are based on trying to do something in this week or this month – that doesn't necessarily make sense. And look, I mean, you can say even, you know, broadening the perspective, you hear a lot of people say once their businesses go public, oh, we've got to make sure that we make our quarterly numbers. But are you making the right decision in that quarter for the next 10 years? Or are you just trying to clear that hurdle right now? There's a difference between managing for the future and managing for right now, I guess, is one of the things that I'm trying to get to. Well, well, the thing that you're, you're stimulating in my mind in terms of what to, to mention as you, you say that is something we haven't talked about yet, and that is the profound fiscal and economic uh, changes that have, t- that have taken place over the last 12 months. We've increased the federal debt from $20 trillion to $28 trillion, and Biden's trying to add another $2 trillion to that. The Federal Reserve increased the supply of U.S. dollars, the effective supply of U.S. dollars in the economy, by 25% which in theory, all else being equal, means that the dollars in your wallet are worth four-fifths of what they were worth before, because literally the Federal Reserve just printed more dollars and flooded them into the economy, which went to the banks, which went to the wealthy, which went to the people who own stocks and, uh, and could benefit from all that extra cash flowing around. didn't go to ordinary people. And, and those problems are going to come back to haunt us. One of the things that I really worry about I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about our ability to handle a future pandemic for the reasons I mentioned. I'm a lot more concerned about what increasing the debt by $8 trillion and increasing the money supply by 25% is going to do to push us into a long-term fiscal crisis that we're not going to be able to deal with. And people, you know, America has been such a stable and generally prosperous country for so long. People have forgotten what it's like to be in an environment where we really have a fundamentally unstable economy. And by fundamentally unstable, I'm talking Weimar Germany, Great Depression, that kind of instability. And we are well on our way. We are well on our way to having basically the monetary policy of Weimar Germany. And look out if that ever comes to pass. And, And there are a lot of scenarios I could, I could bore you with or terrify you with that, that could take place over the next 10, 20 years in that regard. And I, to me, that's the biggest mess that we're going to have to clean up from the last 12 months. How do we get our, our fiscal and economic picture back in line? Because if we don't, the, the rising generations are, are never going to know what it's like to have, to have had that, that success and that prosperity that, that people that are my age and, and your age take for granted. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. 
Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmental Environmentally safe foams, the natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary, indulges your senses, and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking to Ovik Roy. He works at freeop.org. He is at A-V-I-K. Thank him for talking with us. I keep saying I have two more questions, but I, I do, I think, have only two more questions now. One of those questions uh, that is out there is one that my wife asked me to ask you specifically. What is this vaccine going to do, presuming that everybody starts to get the vaccine? When do you think things can get back to quote-unquote normalcy? And walk us through, because she was like, hey, they're saying that you're still going to have to wear a mask after you're vaccinated because you might still then be asymptomatic and able to spread it even after vaccination, which her concern is, if that's true, then how do we get back to normalcy uh, and can you break down the vaccination process and what it looks like and means to the average person out there? That was her big question um, because she doesn't think there's an in-depth discussion enough about what the vaccination actually means in terms of our lives. Yeah, great question, Laura. So first of all, we should, we should mention there's multiple vaccines. They're not identical. The Moderna vaccine and the BioNTech vaccine and the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they're all a little different, um, and, and, but they all seem to work, which is the good news. They're all a little different, and so, uh, uh, so there'll be a lot of different vaccines that are, that are out, out there that you can get access to, just like there are a lot of different COVID tests that you can get access to. But they work, and that's reassuring. So for the people out there who, are, who are, have been skeptical of whether the vaccines work or not or whether it's some you know, government plot, um, I, I'm pretty confident that the vaccines have been studied well, that they do work, and that they are effective. So, uh, will you be in of, line to get it? Will you be in line to get a vaccine? Like, is that something that you care about, or your kids, as opposed to your parents, who you may want to get a vaccine? Like, what would your personal decision be? Yeah, I've, I've signed up on the Austin website. Now, I'm you know I'm 48 years old, and I'm uh, you know I don't I don't have any serious, serious illnesses. So I'm not, I'm not going to be the, be the front of the line. I, I, I wouldn't want to cut in line. I want the yeah, people right. who are at, at greatest risk to, to get it first. 
But uh, but yeah, when it comes out, I'll, I'll definitely get. When I'm able to get it, I'll, I'll definitely get it. And the good news is, you know, again, for all the the caterwauling in the press and and from from people with a partisan point of view, the fact is, uh, we've we've started to 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 overcome some of the stupidity, particularly at the state level, in terms of of blocking people from getting the vaccine. Right. Uh, the rules that that really uh, Florida, Dennis, uh, excuse me, Ron DeSantis in Florida, uh, innovated where you just give it to everyone over 65. You know, let's just do that. Show them your driver's license. Boom, boom, straightforward. Get all the over 65 people the vaccine. Then go work down from there. That's uh, the right way to go. And that was really bungled uh, by, by a number of people. Has DeSantis done the best job almost of any governor in the country, despite the fact that he's been criticized rabidly by many people in the media? Absolutely. You know, I mean, this vaccine thing has only reinforced what you and I talked about with the nursing homes uh, in, back in August. I mean, it was DeSantis who did the right thing, which is let's just open it up to everybody over 65. We're not going to grill you on exactly what your medical history is. We're just going to look at your driver's license. Boom. And if there's extra vaccine at the end of the day, boom, you know, stick it in the arm of the pizza guy. Right. Whereas Andrew Cuomo in New York is literally saying to clinics, if you give the vaccine to someone who isn't in the right subgroup that I've dictated, I will fine you a million dollars. And what does that do? That means a lot of vaccine is getting wasted because at the end of the day, they run out of people who are at the clinic to give the vaccine to. And they literally have to throw out the remaining doses. It's just profoundly idiotic. And it just goes to show, again, it's like consistent with what happened before. You have one uh, one governor in particular who stands out as a data-driven guy who's always doing the right thing and uh, based on the science. And then you have another guy who's just operating from ego and instinct and, and messing up nonstop. So, By the way, also the well, one that gets criticized is the one who's actually looking at the data. That's what's so frustrating to me from that perspective. There are a ton of people listening to us right now that are like, wait. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has done one of the best jobs in the country. I saw on CNN that there were people at the beach in Florida and that everybody was going to die in Florida, right? And that they're opening bars and that their restaurants are open and that schools are open. It's, it's, that's what's so frustrating to me is the media is actually selling us something that's fundamentally not true. And I saw, by the way, on Florida data yesterday, 68% of all people that have gotten the vaccine in Florida, more than anybody in the country, are 65 or over. And so they're specifically right. focusing on the people who are dying of COVID. Yeah, they've been very smart about it. Again, compared to other places where they say, well, you have to be 65 and live in a nursing home and have a pre-existing condition, and then maybe we'll get the vaccine to you. But if you're not, then you have to wait until we're through with all those people first. I mean, it's just totally dumb, just logistically. And, uh, and credit to DeSantis for seeing through that. And, and the CDC uh, the, the, the so-called, you know, gold standard at the CDC, all the bureaucrats, at the CDC, they contributed to this problem by creating a very unwieldy, the kind of thing that bureaucrats would do, not based on real world, how things work, how things get distributed. So uh, kudos to DeSantis. And then the, uh, the Trump administration in its waning days uh, saw that and said, hey, this is stupid. This is what the CDC put out doesn't make any sense. Let's uh, let's overrule them. Of course, there were lots of people saying, oh, you're overruling the CDC. But no, they did the right thing there. And, you know, you have Biden now saying, well, and I, and I want to answer uh, Lars' question about yeah. this. You have Biden out there saying, you know, well, our, our big plan, the thing we're going to do that's different from Trump is we're going to make sure that we deliver 100 million doses of COVID over the next 100 days. Well, do you know what the, the run rate is of vaccines in the last couple of days of the Trump administration was? It's 1.5 million a day, meaning that if Biden does nothing, and just lets the Trump administration plan play out. They'll have delivered 150 million doses over the next 100 days, at least. 
So, you know, th- there's a lot of like Biden put out this big press release the other day saying, oh, here's all the things I'm going to do. I'm going to make people produce PPE. I'm going to deliver 100 million doses of COVID. It's like this is all common sense stuff that's already being done. And the good news is, again, there have obviously been a lot of snafus, a lot of uh, things that have gotten messed up in the early going here. But the good news is we're learning from that in real time. I do think we're going to get uh, easily through 100 million doses in the first 100 days. We should have all the at-risk populations of people who actually want to take the vaccine. Obviously, there are a lot of people who are scared of it or don't want to take it for philosophical reasons. But the people who want to take the vaccine who are over 65 should all get it uh, by March uh, uh, if, if, you know, if they want to. Then we start going to the general population. And my hope is that let's call it uh, let's call it July. Uh, we you know the the, uh, the vast majority of people who want to get vaccinated should be well on their way to getting vaccinated at least the first shot and hopefully the second. And that means that from a standpoint of the way viral transmission works, the virus is not going to be a problem, right? If you've got that much immunity in society, uh, the virus is not going to really be able to get the traction to continue to spread even if not everybody's gotten the vaccine. Think about the measles vaccine. Not everybody gets the measles vaccine. Not everybody gets the flu shot every winter. And yet enough people do that, that we don't have influenza pandemic. So similarly here, if enough people get the vaccine, we should be able to return to normal life. So I, I don't agree with the people who are saying, no, we have to behave as if we're still in lockdown for, for most of this year. I, I think for the first quarter, it's still going to be tough sledding, but but once we get to, to the April, May, June timeframe, I do think things should start to subside. Hopefully the stats on the cases and the hospitalization start to subside, too. And that'll be the thing that hopefully turns around that allows us to, to build more momentum for, for reopening schools, reopening the economy, et cetera. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. I'm Clay Travis. This is Wins and Losses. You're hearing from Ovik Roy. Legit last question for you. And I think we could talk all day, by the way. I could just I could just keep unpacking so much of what you're saying and continue this conversation. And I hope people have enjoyed it. Uh, I said legit last question, but I do want to ask you this. How is freeop.org funded? If people are listening to this right now, and they love what you're saying, and they're like, man, I want to go check out more of the work they're doing, uh, they're capitalists. Uh, are, do you guys raise money? Uh, are you privately funded? What is the method by which you are able to do the work that you do? Well, thank you for asking that, uh, Clay, because we are a nonprofit, a 501c3, tax-exempt, nonprofit, nonpartisan, and we basically survive on donations. So we get donations from uh, people like you, people who are listening to this, uh, podcast or, or radio show, and we're, we we get donations from also charitable foundations uh, that we apply to grants from, and and so we basically you hit up as many people as we'll we'll take the calls, take the meetings, and give them our our pitch about what we're doing, and say, hey, look, if you're if you're looking for a set of ideas that can bring Republicans and Democrats together to make the country better, to expand freedom and expand prosperity, particularly for the little guy who's struggling in this day and age. Uh, take a look at what we're doing and, and, and help support our scholars. And, and, you know, to take the example of our COVID work, right? So it wasn't just me. You know, you, you're, you're having me on your show, and I, and I appreciate that. I appreciate the chance to share what we work on. But it was a whole team of people who put together our work, like on, on reopening schools. Yes, we had our healthcare people talking about uh, the, the COVID piece of it, the virus piece of it, right? But we also had our education experts, people like Dan Lips, for, who's our 
expert on K through 12 education, Preston Cooper, who's our expert on on college and vocational school and how to reopen those schools. And so we had a plan that went from how to reopen preschools to grade schools to high schools to colleges to trade schools. We went through it all, and, and that's because we were able to leverage our whole team of scholars, not just in in biotech and healthcare, but also in education and economics and housing and other areas to do this kind of work. So. And we wouldn't be able to do that if it weren't for for the donations of, of of the people like the people who are listening to this podcast. So if you're interested in supporting our work, whether it's a ten dollar check or if if you're Clay, if you have Clay Travis money, <laughs> a bigger check than that, you can, you can click on the donate tab on our website and and I, I legitimately am going to donate today. Uh, I meant to ask this the Love last it, time. So freeop.org. Uh, I mean, I've just I'm just so impressed with the work that you're doing, and I think we need more work like this. And so uh, I'm going to head. Uh, straight there. So if you are also enjoying this conversation and you want to uh, to support, freeop.org is where you go. Okay, last question for you. So, and the reason why I would use Vietnam as an example is Vietnam is almost universally uh, decided to have been a, the biggest failure of American public policy for most of the last 50 years, right? Let's go all the way back to, to Vietnam. The smartest people got it all wrong on Vietnam. In the years that have ensued since Vietnam finished, that has become the consensus opinion. We got it wrong. We didn't foment the right public policy. We wasted a lot of lives. We didn't do what would have been best for the country. I would imagine almost everybody out there listening right now, there's very few people who are like in the camp of Vietnam was expertly executed by the United States government. Will we reach the point? I know you said you've got your report coming out at the end of February where masses of American population recognize that lockdowns, that shutdowns, that schools being closed was a failure of policy, or are so many people committed to what their opinion was in real time through social media and everything else that people will be unwilling to recognize what the data tells them because it conflicts with the emotions they felt in that moment. And I asked that question because I think it's significant and important that we learn from the mistakes that we make in public policy in our country. Will we end up, because I think you would agree with me right now, that the data is almost uniform that lockdowns don't make sense. And you can use, fortunately, because of federalism, we've got all these 50 different states that may have implemented a little bit different policy And I think it's clear that California hasn't had some radically better result than Texas or that certainly New York hasn't been better than Florida. In fact, it's far worse. I use those four states because they're the most populous. In other words, the virus was going to virus, right? Like we weren't going to be able to escape it based on a public policy decision exclusively. Will we reach that consensus? When does that consensus come if we are ever going to reach it? I think it's going to take a long time, Clay, because, you know, the people who were involved in this debate, people like you and me and the people who we disagreed with, pretty pretty invested in their point of view at this point, right? Nobody wants to admit they're wrong. Nobody is going to be inclined to admit they're wrong, even if they secretly believe they're wrong. Some people just don't believe they're wrong because they're not going to look at the data that doesn't confirm their own uh, preconceptions, right? So I think it's going to take some time uh, for that to happen. But that's where organizations like FreeUp hopefully can play a role, along with obviously guys like you, in terms of doing the research, doing the analyses that we can then circulate 
uh, in the media, circulate with, with our, our peers and colleagues that show uh, that that's the case, right? So it, it's up to the people like us who, who have the views that we have or the hypotheses or whatever you want to call it to actually do the research, do the work to show that actually if you look at California and you look at Texas and you look at the economic restrictions that they put in or didn't put in, here was uh, how that affected uh, the, the rate of COVID infections and their hospitalizations and deaths. And it, it's, it's pretty clear that 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 nothing really happened there, and and or that 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 the Texas or Florida model was vindicated. I think that's that's going to be some of the work that 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 people at Freeop and and elsewhere are going to have to do to, to make that point clear. So it's up to researchers who wanna who wanna test that hypothesis or or uh, or, or or prove it to do that work, and and that's where uh, organizations like us really make a difference. The whole reason we started Freeop, Freeop is only five years old, four and a half years old. And the whole reason we started it is because even though this country is so big, 330 million people, there was literally nobody doing this kind of work if we didn't do it, which sounds crazy. Like I look around, I'm like, how is it possible that we're the only ones writing these, you know, long articles? I say that in sports every day. How is it possible that OutKick is the only place doing what we do? It's it's scary, honestly. Yeah. And, And so it just, uh, you know, puts a little more pressure on us maybe to, to work harder and, and get that stuff out there. And, and we certainly take that responsibility seriously and are, are going to continue to do that. So so keep an eye on, uh, on our Twitter account, our website, and, uh, and hold us accountable if we don't get it done and, and ask us uh, when, our, when that work is going to come out because it's important to get it done. It's not only important to get it done, it's also important for the very scientific method itself. Because the idea that experts know everything, to me, is one of the lasting legacies of COVID that is going to be the most destructive because the scientific method is predicated on coming up with hypotheses, testing them, and always expecting that you may be wrong, whereas it seems to me that social media is predicated almost entirely on never admitting you were wrong about anything. Yeah, you know, I mean, you mentioned Vietnam. We, we we talked about it on the last interview as well. You know, we've obviously talked about COVID. Think about the housing crisis in 2008, right? All the experts said housing prices only go up; they never go down because that's what the historical charts show. But of course, you know, every trend is made to be broken, and you have a, a housing bubble, you have a financial bubble, you have uh, institutions behaving recklessly, people behaving recklessly, over leveraging their 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 equity in their homes, and boom. You have a crash, right? And that's what happened. And there were the people that uh, that Michael Lewis wrote about in The Big Short, which was a great book and a great Phenomenal. movie. Phenomenal, yes. You know, I mean, and obviously the author of Moneyball as well and, and The Blind Side, incredible writer. Like, what what's the running theme of all those uh, all those books, all those movies? It's that the experts didn't get it right, and there was some random creative nerd out there who was right where the experts were wrong. And so that's a, you know, there's a balance, right? We don't want to say science doesn't matter, that, you know, you should just ignore everything that a scientist says because the scientists are always wrong. That's not true. But it's also true that experts, particularly experts who have a political point of view, often, uh, uh, you know, aren't willing to see countervailing or contradictory evidence that that conflicts with their worldview. So the balance is somewhere in the middle. The balance is have a healthy skepticism of uh, of what you hear from the so-called experts don't automatically assume they're wrong either, but have that healthy skepticism. Do your own work. Do your own checking. Ask intelligent questions. That's what we should have done in 2008 with the financial crisis. That's what we should have done with the Vietnam War or the Iraq War. That's what we should do with COVID and everything else that comes along along the way. And if we do that, we'll have a much more healthy society 
uh, and hopefully better responses to the, to the challenges that come before us in the future. I'm donating to them, freeop.org. I'd encourage you to do it as well. I'd also encourage you to go follow uh, Ovik Roy at AVIK. You can thank him for coming on and talking to our OutKick audience here. And when you publish, hopefully in late February, since you've now established a date, when you publish that and I have a chance to read it, uh, we will get you on again. Uh, I appreciate you answering my wife's questions. Uh, and uh, And again, give her credit because – she loved this interview, and she said, you've got to get him on again, and you've got to talk to him again and get an update. So I appreciate everything that you're doing at your organization, and I appreciate the time you gave us today. Hey, same to you. Thanks for being a voice for, uh, for, for the, real, the real truth out there on these issues. Really, really important. You, your, your audience, you've, you've grown such a big audience, and, and you have uh, uh, you know, the trust of so many people, and you've used it uh, for, for uh, social good to, to get people the information they need. So people like me are grateful to you for that. Ovik Roy, go follow him at AVIK. I am Clay Travis. This is Wins and Losses. I think this is the first time we've ever had a guest on twice, so you know how highly I think of him. Go donate, freeop.org. Appreciate all of you. Go check out the rest of our Wins and Losses conversations, including Ovik and I's first conversation, which is up from August 21st. Thank you, my man. Thank to all you, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Share it with your friends. This has been Wins and Losses. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.